Let us pray. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for your incredible, gracious, extravagant love to us and for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, teach us to evermore love you with all that we are. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you this morning. Um, you'll hear this again during the announcement time, but just to emphasize to everyone, next Sunday is um, our annual visit by our bishop and our new bishop, um, his first visit, Bishop Chris Warner, will be with us next Sunday, one service at 11 a.m. Um, we'll have a number of people being confirmed and received into the church that day. And then also adult education hour, one class in here in the main church um, from 9.45 to 10.45. And Bishop Chris will be speaking during that time as well. So we encourage all of you to make that a priority as we'll have a wonderful, wonderful time together in the Lord's presence. Well, I'd invite you to turn to our gospel reading from Matthew 22 on your Bibles or devices with Scripture on them, or there are some Bibles under the pews you can reach down and grab as well. Focusing today on the first portion of our gospel reading, specifically verses 34 through 40. Now, these verses are quite familiar to us because we hear them read as part of our service every Sunday and on other occasions when we come together for the Holy Eucharist or for Holy Communion. Hear what our Lord Jesus Christ says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. These are incredibly important words of our Lord which merit being recited every Sunday. However, the challenge with hearing these words from Jesus recorded in Holy Scripture recited every Sunday is that they can easily become too familiar to us. And we can start to miss the magnitude of Jesus' words and cease to fully ponder and reflect on them and how well or not so well our lives are being conformed to our Lord's commands to his call upon each of our lives. It, it's also important as we look at these verses to understand the setting in which our Lord spoke these words. And I want to begin by giving credit to Erasmo Leva Maricacus. I know that is a long name. Um, he is a Catholic biblical scholar who is now in later years a Trappist monk. Wonderful, wonderful um, exposition on the Gospel of Matthew that's like three volumes each this thick that he wrote that is just a wonderful, wonderful resource. I'm going to be quoting from him several times in this sermon. But as we look at and understand the setting, the setting for all this begins all the way back in Matthew chapter 21, verse 23, where we read, And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? From this verse in Matthew 21 all the way through Matthew chapter 23, you have this back and forth among the religious leaders who are trying to weave a net around Jesus to entrap him. The fact is these religious leaders were not seekers of the truth. The fact is that the Sadducees and the Pharisees despised each other, 
Yet together they despise Jesus even more than they despise each other separately. Merikakis puts it this way. What a dismal sight it is to see so much effort expended simply to banish the light from the world. The truly satanic nature of the endeavor is most clearly manifested by the fact that the Pharisees and the Sadducees plainly hate one another. And yet this professional hatred temporarily drives them to collaborate with one another because both groups hate Jesus even more. What kind of a cobble is this that is, brings together people when hatred is the true motor force? And the fact is, it is a very, very dark place when the only unifying force between a, two groups of people is that your enemy is my enemy, that we hate this individual or this group even more than we hate each other. That's a really, really bad place and nothing good can come of that. So in the midst of this, they come to Jesus or rather they send one of the scribes of the Pharisees to Jesus to try to trip him up by asking the question, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Thinking that no matter what Jesus says, they can point then to another part of the law to condemn his answer. Basically to entrap Jesus. However, Jesus' first words to them shut them down. You shall love. You shall love. Jesus says and demonstrates the truth of you shall love, even as those who come to him with disdain, wicked plotting, and seeking to deceive and destroy, even as they come to him with this, what he says in these verses encompasses the totality of God's Old Testament law. And to be clear, Jesus is not simply quoting and encapsulating the Old Testament text. Jesus himself, hear this, as the eternal son of God, is the very giver of these words. So as with Jesus as the eternal son of God, there is no difference whatsoever between himself and the word of the law of the Old Testament given, which he proclaims to them in this moment. So let's take a few moments to unpack Jesus' two main points here. Both of Jesus' commands here in this text start with the words, you shall love. Both commands are firmly tied to God's Old Testament law. However, and we talked about this a little bit a few weeks ago, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind has always come first and will and must always come first. Because you cannot obey the latter command in verses 39 through 40 without first obeying the former command to love God. And what Jesus says here is directly tied to Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 6, three of the most important verses in all of Scripture for a faithful God-fearing Jew. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Both in the Old and the New Testament, what is spoken of here is not simply an attitude or some affection or some superficial outward conformity. Rather, what Jesus speaks of here and what God's word in the Old Testament and through the words of our Lord speak of 
is all-encompassing. It entails and requires a radical interior transformation, a transformation of heart which only God can bring about so that we see and understand things through God's transforming grace in the light of God's truth. C.S. Lewis, in an essay he entitled Meditation in a Tool Shed, wrote about this when he writes, I was standing today in the dark tool shed. The sun was shining outside, and through the crack at the top of the door there came a sunbeam. From where I stood that beam of light with the specks of dust floating in it was the most striking thing in the place. Everything was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam, not seeing things by it. Then I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly, the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed and above all, no beam. Instead, I saw framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside. And beyond that, 90 odd million miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. And the idea here is that anyone can learn about the truth of the gospel from the outside by reading, by studying, but it requires an interior transformation, being born again, knowing Christ personally as Lord and Savior from the inside to see and respond according to God's eternal truth. We are called, brothers and sisters, and empowered to love God with our heart and with our soul and with our mind, the entirety of our being. But this is something that only is possible through God's transforming grace and which only becomes a reality through surrender. Surrender, a word we've heard spoken repeatedly in recent weeks. We must guard our hearts and not become ensnared in the same kind of thinking as these religious leaders who in a sense were looking to obey the law outwardly and at the same time, despite all their hyperscrupulosity, looking for the path of least resistance in the same sense. What must I do to be right with God? Because as human beings in our fallen sinful natures, apart from God's transformation, we will look solely to the externals and what we can get away with and still be acceptable to God. And that is not how things work. We can never do something to make ourselves acceptable to God. All our righteousness is as filthy rags. There is none righteous, no, not one. We cannot make ourselves right, but God offers us life and his transforming power and grace in our lives to make us new creations. Far too often, uh, people in the world and even some people in churches think of this hypothetical scale or balances and they have this erroneous idea that if in the end I've done more good in my life than bad, if, it, if the scale tilts at least a little bit toward the good, then I'm okay with God and I have eternal life and I'm justified and I go into God's presence for all of eternity. That is not correct. That is not the way it works. Good works cannot outweigh sin. God wants to radically transform us 
and make us new creations. As Maricacus says, Jesus wants to set fire to our hearts so that our whole being, all that we are, can become fully alive in Christ. In Ezekiel chapter 36, the prophet writes, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We must always remember whatever outward fruit we bear, if it is of any eternal value, it must grow out of God's transforming power in our lives and our loving him through a surrendered heart and soul and mind. That Jesus says that loving God is the first commandment infers that there is indeed a second commandment, and here it is. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 39, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But hear me, going back to what we said a few minutes ago, you and I cannot love our neighbor as ourself without first loving God. Because the two are inextricably, inextricably linked. There's an old Frank Sinatra song I can remember my grandparents listening to because they liked music from that era. And it's kind of hokey, but it, it really fits here. Love and marriage, love and marriage go together like a horse and carriage. This I tell you, brother, you can't have one without the other. And the same is true with loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. You cannot love your neighbor as yourself without loving God. You cannot have one without the other. They're inextricably linked. And just as the first commandment encapsulates the Godward commandments, not only of the Ten Commandments, but also what we heard in our Old Testament reading this morning, and what we heard in our New Testament reading with, um, we shared not only with you the gospel, but our very lives as well. Just as the first commandment encapsulates the commandments, obedience to the commandments toward God, so the second commandment encapsulates the entirety of God's commands for us to love our neighbor, for our love to be for and toward our neighbor. But just as we spoke of briefly two weeks ago, as we looked at the account of the rich young man in Matthew 19, again, we can never love our neighbor the way in which God calls and will indeed empower us to do this without first surrendering and continuing to surrender our lives to God and loving him with all our heart and soul and mind. Because the kind of love which God calls us to love with is not native to us. It is supernatural. It comes to God and is infused in our spirits by God. And it's contrary to everything that unredeemed sinful human nature in the world around us would say to us. St. John Chrysostom put it this way. To love God is to love our neighbor. To love God is to love our neighbor. So who is our neighbor? Is it just those who live next door? Is it just our friends or people that we like? 
Is it simply people with whom we are acquainted? Well, biblically, when we look at the testimony of Scripture, our neighbor is every other person, especially anyone in need. Think of the example that Jesus gives us in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. A Jewish man who was robbed and beaten and left half dead along the side of the road. And a priest, one of his own, he wasn't a priest, but a fellow Jew passed by and made a point to go to the other side. And then another fellow Jew, a Levite, did the same thing, passing by on the other side. But the Samaritan, his sworn cultural and religious enemy, bound up his wombs and took him to an inn and took care of him and nursed him back to health. Loving our neighbor, hear this, because this is the hard part. This is the part that can only happen by God's work in us. Loving our neighbor means loving even those who have made themselves our enemies. Did you hear that? As Marikakis says, in the case of God himself, I am henceforth to love, impelled not by subjective inclination and whim, but by another's need for my love. And I would add, by another's need for God's love through me. Many of you know I have cousins in Maryland who are dairy farmers. And um, they work horrendous hours. Anybody that's been around a farm knows what I'm talking about. It's seven days a week, 365 days a year, from about five in the morning till nine or 10 at night. But back in 1999, um, they had a devastating barn fire in the middle of the night. It was caused, it was an electrical fire and um, they lost some of their dairy cattle in the barn. Fortunately, a lot of them were out on pasture, but their barn, you know, because it was in the middle of the night, someone driving down the road saw the flames coming through the roof through the roof of the barn so the fire was very advanced before they were even aware it was going on and their barn other than the the lower portion of the walls that was cinder block burned to the ground now this is their milking barn and for a, for a farmer that's a devastating thing um my cousins live in northern harford county maryland about 15 miles from the pennsylvania line and the very next day, so the day, the morning after the fire, word spread through the Amish community about 35 miles up the road in Quarryville, Pennsylvania. And one of the leaders of the Amish community came down to the farm. His name was Fisher. And he, he looked at the devastation and wept. And he said to my, I refer to him as my uncle. He's my mom's first cousin, but he was uncle to me. Um, you need help. And the Amish community of their own volition offered to rebuild the entire barn for the cost of the materials. We're talking a large barn. You know, this is a barn that could house about 200 dairy cows. And not only that, my cousins only missed one milking. By evening of that day, the community had come together and gotten temporary electricity run through the, the, the shell of the barn. They cleared out all the fire debris, which was a lot of stuff to clear out. And they milked in the foundation of that barn. My, I remember my uncle saying, it was so strange, I'm milking cows and looking up and seeing the stars over my head. But the Amish community, for the cost of the materials and my uncle providing transportation and a meal at lunchtime, 
rebuilt that entire barn in four to six weeks time. And what they did was there would be a crew that would come every day. And the crew that was there, the other members of the community up in Quarryville, 35 or 40 miles up the road, took care of their animals, and took care of their farms that day as well as their own, while these Amish community members rebuilt my cousin's barn. It was an amazing thing. And, and my cousins, just to be clear, aren't even close to Amish. My cousins are nominal Catholics. If you know anything about church history and theology, Amish and Catholics, there's a slight gap there. <laughs> yeah. But what they did was an incredible act and witness of loving one's neighbor as themselves. We will love our neighbor with the same good and godly desires which we aspire to know in our lives as God is at work transforming us. But we need to understand, we can't do this. We can't even try to do this in our own strength. This is totally supernatural. And it comes first by loving God wholeheartedly and continually yielding, continually surrendering to Him and His good and gracious and transforming work in our lives. And as we do that, God will equip us to love those who may even be our enemies with his love, with the same kind of love that he has demonstrated toward us by sending his son, Jesus Christ. And the more we surrender, the more God, even as I talked about last Sunday, will work in our lives and show us areas that we need to resubmit and surrender to him. And he may even shine, or he will shine his light on those nooks and crannies in our lives, if you will, Maybe they've never been fully surrendered to him so that he molds and shapes us and makes us more and more like him, reflecting his character. And as he does that, supernaturally by his transforming power, we will indeed love our neighbors, those all around us, not just in this church, but in our community, in our workplace, wherever the Lord takes us, we will love them as ourselves. And to be clear, this church, you all do a wonderful, wonderful job in so many ways of loving our neighbors as ourselves. Look at even things like our monthly food giveaways and so many other things that you all do, both within the church and, and by the leading of God of your own volition. But God calls us and commands us by his power to do that ever more and more and more. And we do that by growing in more and more in love with him. So let's ask him to continue to do that in our lives, that we would love him with all of our heart and soul and mind, and that like he has done for us, we will love our neighbor as ourself. Let us pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your incredible love for us. Thank you for your transforming power and grace in our lives and offer to all who would call upon the name of Jesus. And Lord, thank you for the opportunities you have given us and the grace to obey your call to love our neighbors as ourselves. To desire for them not only what we desire for ourselves, but what you desire and will for their lives. So Lord, work in our hearts. 
dust out those nooks and crannies that need more of your light and your life, that we would become ever more fully surrendered to you. And Lord, transform us and work in our hearts that supernatural work that we can love our neighbors, even our sworn enemies, those who have chosen to make themselves our enemies, that we could love them as you love them and as we love ourselves. Lord, teach us how to bless, how to love, how to reflect your character for the glory of your name. Do that in our lives. Do that in our families. Do that in the life of this church. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.